in the middle of 80s, I would say, with uh, countries started falling apart economically. There was emptiness in the stores. It's hard for you guys to believe, but even in Moscow, in the capital city, I would go to the store and it would be maybe one uh, kind of milk. Uh, you go to the bakery, it would be maybe two, three kinds of the bread. If you are lucky, extremely lucky, uh, you might get uh, a piece of cheese, but the lines were for, for hours. Hi guys, it's your girl Nahama, your favorite Jew from the Lou. Welcome back to my podcast. Today, we're really fortunate to have Yelena Fish over here, and she's a good friend of my mom's, and her story is so incredibly intriguing. So we're going to get right into it. Um, I do love history, but there are certain parts of history that I know more about and certain parts that I'm curious and want to learn more about. So you grew up back in Russia when there was like the Iron Curtain. And so I would love to learn more about that because I did some brief research on my own, but no one could speak better than someone who actually experienced it. So to begin, why don't we talk about what it was like as a little girl growing up there? Nahama, first of all, I want to uh, a little bit change uh, uh, the name of the country where I grew up. I did not grow up in Russia. I grew up in the Soviet Union. And for your generation and probably a majority of uh, younger people who are younger than 40 or 50, it's like an Ottoman Empire, something which is completely uh, out of a map of the world. And many young people don't even know that this huge blob on the map that nowadays is called Russia uh, was called for 70 plus years the Soviet Union. What was the Soviet Union? It was a combination, it was a galaxy of republics. In, officially, it was called independent republics. But the huge territory was indeed Russia, and that's with the capital of Moscow, where I was born, and um, the rest were republics like Moldova, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, uh, Georgia, uh, Azerbaijan, and so forth. So this humongous territory, which was one-sixth of the whole world, was called the Soviet Union. So as you completely uh, correctly said, in 1980, uh, I might be a little bit uh, of the numbers, but right before the 90s, the Soviet Union fell apart after the Berlin Wall, thanks to President Reagan a lot, and uh, uh, at the time, relatively progressive Russian leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. Maybe you've heard the words perestroika, again, not your generation. Uh, but the generation of older, a little older people, it was a complete change and hope all this gigantic 
uh, territory and the people who lived there that the country is taking a new and never experienced course, the course of that all the republics that in the constitution were called independent, they will be independent indeed and become a separate states. And uh, Russia, humongous Russia will be called Russia. Moscow was still the capital city, and uh, that's where I was born. Um, as a young girl, you asked me the question, how was it? Um, I would say we didn't know what country we lived in because the country was completely, it's hard for you guys to even imagine, but we lived in absolute um, exclusion, isolated from the entire world. So even if you would have some money, which uh, people, most of the people were making very little money, but you could pay your apartment, everything belonged to the government. Your apartment, almost nobody had a, very few people had a uh, personal car, very few. Uh, none of our friends, even though my, both of my parents were civil engineers, here is a very respectful job. In Soviet Union, it was laughable job because um, engineers made such a tiny money that um, my mom, I remember, she would never cry about that, but she would kind of sarcastically laughing, she would get her, um, she would receive her payment once a month, and she immediately would give what she borrowed from other people and start borrowing again from the friends. So um, putting that aside, again, it was a lifestyle that we didn't know any better. And because the television was pre presenting that life is wonderful in the Soviet Union. Uh, poor Americans, poor um, Western society lives in very uh, scary, destructive wor uh, world. There are so many um, jobless people who live on the streets. Uh, believe it or not, uh, there was a stories that uh, black people are uh, kicked and beaten with sticks left and right on the streets in America. So very bleak um, image of Western world, America in particular. So we lived in the past, best country of the world. So that's how the propaganda worked. 24 hours, you would turn on the television. There were only two or three programs as far as I remember. And it was very always optimistic. We have the best education in our country. We have the best uh, health care. Everything the best than in the Western world. So till the certain age, I lived like anybody, anybody else without any idea what is behind our curtains. Very few people were able to go abroad, even in the countries that were socialist um, countries like 
Poland, Bulgaria, it was a socialist bloc of countries that were created after the Second World War. So even to go to the nearby Bulgaria, it was almost impossible because you would have to go through incredible uh, checkup and you would have to be called uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to officials to stay to make a statement that you are real patriotic and you love your country and your country is the best even you would like to just go and have a vacation so it was a very very different world that um it for you guys it's very hard to imagine yeah but at that time uh till again a certain age i was probably a happy child as anybody else because we didn't know how bad we have what what the country we are living in so then at what point was it when the iron curtain came down when you started to learn more information about how the rest of the world was was that the point where you started to see that there is hope and there is a better life were you out there of course um what was always um, circulating among, I would say, intelligentsia. It's a word for people who are uh, educated, who went through colleges and universities. It was always a black market of a literature. Uh, it would, it could be just a um, magazines or um, written down. Uh, stories what happened in the west in the reality or it would be um, like a writings of those russians who were expelled like you know of course solzhenitsyn or um, several very uh, prominent russian um, thinkers and uh, poets and uh, writers uh, were able somehow to escape the Soviet Union on behalf, they were risking their lives. And some literature was secretly and with a huge um, danger for those people who would bring it to the country and not only bring it, but even hold it in your house. It was extremely dangerous to keep it in your house and try to give it to your close friend to read what really happens outside of uh, or Iron Curtain. So I was lucky enough that um, at, um, at the age of probably, first of all, of course, I was listening just a little bit uh, my parents talk with their close friends and you have to understand that if you discuss uh, politics or just the simple stories of people's life it could be only if you completely trust to the person who you are talking to you always talk in a small kitchen or in a, some small room because you don't know um, very many people who were um, having their own set of mind in their homes. They were secretly 
uh, inserted, uh, they were called uh, bugs. So it's a electronic little, um, what do you call it? Um, like a recorder? Recorders, right. So only with your very close friends, you could discuss and even get some literature to read and start thinking on your own uh, what, what's going on and what really, uh, what, what a society we live in. So, uh, and that's what happened. Uh, many people, um, not many, but some, very few people would even go into the woods uh, to, again, either study this literature in small groups, uh, not to knowing that somebody is not following them. Um, and, of course, um, I would say the majority of those people were Jews, believe it or not, even though, even though it was a tiny little, just like any anywhere else, it was a tiny little percentage of Jews living in the Soviet Union. Because first of all, you know it better than anybody else, how many Jews were killed during the Holocaust, Second World War. And after Holocaust, it was a mini Holocaust that Stalin, after the war, started in the Soviet Union. Those people who survived through this horror of the war and lost the majority of their relatives, they were, after all, followed by the Stalin regime. And um, in, if Stalin would not die in uh, 1953, I believe the majority, the, the very tiny group of Jews who were still living in the Soviet Union and survived, they would be wiped up. And it, it is a huge amount of literature now that uh, talks about that. You, we learned all about that during Perestroika and Glasnost. Uh, that's when, um, in the middle of 80s, I would say, with uh, countries started falling apart economically. There was emptiness in the stores. It's hard for you guys to believe. But even in Moscow, in the capital city, I would go to the store and it would be maybe one uh, kind of milk. Uh, you go to the bakery, it would be maybe two, three kinds of the bread. If you are lucky, extremely lucky, uh, you might get uh, a piece of cheese. But the lines were for, for hours, for hours in, in the stores. Uh, not even talking fresh fruits and vegetables. And uh, there were markets where people were selling like a, uh, not, it was not private, but uh, people who grew up, like if you would live behind, uh, outside of the city, some people would grow a little garden and they would bring some fresh fruits or vegetables and sell them in the open market, uh, like little markets here. But for most people, it was um, so, so expensive to buy. So they would literally buy one or two or three apples for their children 
and parents would just be happy that so their kids would have some vitamins to eat yeah this is crazy to hear about because you read stories but it's one thing to like read a story and then actually talk to someone who's lived through the experience and interestingly enough Moscow, for all the people who lived in different cities and different uh, villages, uh, they were, they believed this Moscovites, people who live in, again, capital or big cities, they are so lucky, they have so much. And they would come, there would be special trains full of people just to come to Moscow to buy like piece of clothes or shoes and again that they would stay in lines for hours and maybe even overnight to get a pair of shoes from let's say Czechoslovakia which was also a country of the socialist bloc but the quality and um, uh, you know it was much better than the ugly shoes that were even not always uh, available in the Russian stores. However, there were black markets, of course. People always would find ways. Um, and there were people who you would come again into the house or um, they would uh, secretly meet you somewhere and they would offer you something that is uh, either made in the country but with the labels, like if they are coming from Western world. Or, but again, it was untouchable in price, so very few people could buy them. Um, so again, uh, as I said, the majority of intelligentsia, which were as hard as it was for the Jews to go to the university, it was huge quota. It would be, uh, I don't know, one out of 200 people, 300 people. I can't tell you exact numbers, but um, when you come for the examination to be accepted to college or university, as soon as they see the last, the Jewish last name, and the Jewish last name is always sounds differently because um, Russian last names are like here, like Smith. It means something. The Jewish last name, like mine, Fish, means fish here in the Soviet in America, but in uh, Soviet Union, it immediately rings the bell. Ha ha, that's not Russian. And plus, um, everywhere you go to be hired for job or to apply for the college university, you have to bring all your documents, your passport. And then your passport, the first question, your name, second, your last name, the way, the date you were born, uh, fourth, uh, were your edges, and we were called it ugly fifth question, your nationality. And your nationality, it's not Russian or Ukrainians if you are Jewish just by blood. If you have to put Jewish, and that Would was a know? big red, red mark. Would they know if you didn't? Like, could you just change your name or just forge it? That was my story. That was exactly my story when I... Um, 
wanted to study um, editing and journalism in the university, I was told, even though I grew up in a vegetarian times, so the anti-Semitism was not as horrifying like it was in the time of my parents uh, when they grew up. Uh, so we were able to live in Moscow while the previous generations that I don't know if you ever read in the historical books, but it was so-called Pale of Settlement. So uh, all the Jews, which again was a tiny little percentage, even before Jews started coming to America or um, uh, Palestine uh, at the beginning of the uh, 20, 19, 19, 20th centuries end of 19, beginning 20th centuries. So Jews were not allowed to live in any big cities, only in a small, tiny villages in Ukraine, Belarus, Lithuania. That's why so many uh, Jews who uh, live here in America, they have all their relatives coming, as a rule, from these little places, mm -hmm. because Jews were not allowed, if you are a Jewish person, you could never be able to move west to any cities like St. Petersburg, Moscow, you name it. So anyway, uh, why I started telling you that, oh, my own story. So at that time, there was a, uh, some Jews still, uh, after the revolution, that pronounced that all nations are equal at the beginning of the, uh, the revol Russian Revolution happened in 1917. So um, it was a officially written on the paper that all the nations are equal, have the equal rights. That's why so many Jews became a part of uh, socialist communist uh, movement because they truly believed that now they can uh, change their lifestyle. They were eager to get the education, move to big cities, study like anybody else, be citizens like anybody else, and not to be, um, uh, you know, for generation live the lifestyle that their great-great-grandparents had, and uh, mainly the education that was pushing them out of the pale of settlement. And they naively, naively, they believed that they will be allowed to get the same education, get the same jobs, be involved in regular job, in the regular life of um, the other people, like Russians, Ukrainians, um, Azerbaijanians. And for a little while, it was like that, but it changed quite, quite quickly. So by the time my parents uh, grew up, and uh, even my time, which I said was much less cruel than towards uh, the generation of my parents and my grandparents, uh, when I uh, came to apply to the university, I was given quite friendly, not friendly, but quite honest uh, suggestion 
Lena, with your last name and with your nationality, there is no way you will be accepted unless you change your last name. If you change your last name, if you change your documents, then maybe you will be accepted, but there is no guarantee. So it was a not easy, of course, uh, emotionally, and uh, uh, it was extremely hard, especially on my father's side. Um, and um, I had to do that to get my education. I did not, I still was not accepted. Uh, we had a day classes like here, you go in the morning, and for um, less fortunate people who either had a family or had to work, they were night classes. So my only way uh, was to uh, go through the night education, even after I, my uh, last name was changed. And so at this point, you were Jewish, but was there any religious connection at all? Or because you were living in the time where it was just so communist that it was all about just being Russian and blending in? I had never knew what Jewish, being Jewish even mean, believe it or not, till again I became a um, teenager and not 13 or 14, but closer to 16, beside like listening quite ugly and nasty jokes, which were so many, every, every second joke in Russia was about um, greedy and, and you know okay let's put put a point greedy and ugly jews um we were kikes we it was um the common name for jewish person um even the people who would be uh like russians like my dad used to tell me many times they would say oh yuri you are a great guy even even though you are a Jew. It was always sad, straight face to the person. So at the time when I was uh, 15, uh, 16 years old, I started, uh, started interested in, uh, I think we all, when we are in our teenager, some people younger, some people older, but we start looking for some spiritual insight of our in Jewish, yeah. Now I, of course, know this Nishama word. So, who am I, and what is what it really means to be Jewish um, in Moscow? Which again was absolutely even in the good times. There were only seven synagogues in Moscow uh, where. It was the tiniest percentage of Jews. Before revolution, I've heard that there were sin seven synagogues. When I grew up, it was one, and nobody other than very, very old people who had nothing to lose or risk, uh, like in their 60s or 70s, only that old people would go to the synagogue to pray. Uh, because if you even close, even enter the synagogue in Moscow, of course uh, you would be called on the on the carpet, 
I, I think this is the idiom in English. So you would be called on the carpet next day at your work or at your you know, class if you are a student. And most probably you would lose your job, you're kicked out of the school. So, but at a certain time, again, towards the middle of 70s, some literature, uh, the times started changing very, very slowly in the Soviet Union because first and most importantly, economics. The country could not feed their people with all these gigantic resources, with huge territory, with so many, you know, um, uh, with so many resources. resources, even in the soil. You know, right now Russia sells oil and uh, gas, but there is all the uh, metals that are, ex I mean, everything, and even the land itself, it's a huge value. But the, the people were starving because of this communist, socialist economics that uh, country by country, when people in this country are so excited about the socialism, I always smile and laugh and say, Guys, there is luckily no Soviet Union anymore or uh, Soviet bloc, but uh, go and try to live in Venezuela and feel what does it mean to live in socialism. Socialism never gives people uh, uh, decent lifestyle, decent income, decent uh, medical uh, care, it is, it is, and it's always closed society because those who are in charge, they don't want the population know how the people live in this country. It is very clever in a sense politics. So they completely cut off the population of this country from entire world. So they have. No, they could not make any comparison the, the way they live versus the rest of the world. I mean, that explains why so many people from all over the world are trying to get to the United Ouch. States. Just because the opportunities that we have, the religious freedoms that we have, anyone can start from nothing and become something, which is incredible. So you had told me that you had come over with your ex-husband, your daughter, and you were pregnant at the time and you knew nobody. So what was that like? That's the hardest part of my whole life. Um, I lived with my parents, uh, again, in Soviet Union, there is not such thing like having, uh, I mean, in my time, most of the families, uh, it was nuclear family, mom, dad, children, children, Children it means one child or two children maximum because people just could not afford more kids and I have recently read that a Russian woman Russian women on an average had about 11 15 abortion per life because wow. it was now no you know um, it was they they could not uh, take care of many children there was a lack of contraceptives and so forth so two 
one child was a lot, two kids were many. So uh, that's why I had only my brother who, to my sadness, he still lives in Russia. And if you want to tell, I'll tell you this story, but it's, um, yes, uh, we had nobody here in America, 90% of people from the Soviet Union who came in the 70s, it was a tiny little opening of the window of immigration during, um, it was Brezhnev time, uh, the major politic person in the Soviet Union, because it was a huge push again on in the West, let our people go. So, but in the 90s, it was the major exodus of Soviet Jews from the Soviet Union. And um, if, um, again, I'm bad with numbers, but um, two-thirds of Jews, if not more, uh, left. And uh, with, again, with this such a hardship of getting education by the Jewish person, the vast majority of Jews who came over to the West, not only, of course, to United States, but to Canada, uh, real people who felt uh, strong about their Jewish roots, the Zionism, they uh, went to Israel. Uh, some people, uh, Germany had a, um, made a, um, just to make up for what happened during the war, they offered Soviet Jews to come over to the, their country to somehow uh, pay back and let those people, because in Germany it was huge. I mean, again, huge, not in terms of numbers, but the most famous philosopher, poor, uh, literature people, um, scientists, you name it, the thinkers were Jewish. So anyway, so some people, even though with knowing what happened during, uh, for me, it's hard to even imagine to immigrate to Germany, but nevertheless, uh, German uh, offered a very big uh, social social support to, to those Jewish families who would be willing to immigrate. Um, we came to America um, with, yes, as you said, my ex-husband. And um, at the time, luckily, it was, again, such a never experienced uh, sense of coming freedom to this country. It was not Soviet Union cold yet. It was not cold yet Russia. It was in between because uh, it was uh, cold. Um, anyway, it was a feeling that if you, like anybody in this world, you go to, let's say, France to live, right? You live there a few years and you feel, no, it's not my, I, I really miss my family, my country, my lifestyle, and you able to come back. So my husband and I, we uh, decided because so many of our friends, our acquaintance and friends 
were making Kaliyah to Israel or coming here. And we decided we should try because we were relatively young at that time, not completely young, but relatively young. And we had this opportunity at least. And nobody was saved that this opportunity will stay forever. So we thought, okay, we will go, even though we had not even one relative, not even one acquaintance here, which was again, as I said, absolutely, mostly uncommon. Uh, but it was um, a very small amount of Soviet Jews who were sponsored. You, you, you would have to have a sponsor. And the sponsor would be if you have cousins here or your uh, brothers or parents, they would sponsor the families. But since we, were ha we had nobody, uh, the Jewish Federation, apparently the federations around the countries, they would pull the families out of the bucket and uh, uh, Fish family, that was my last name, my husband's last name was Aronoff, uh, was pulled and uh, we came to uh, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, knowing only about, believe it or not, St. Louis Blues. It was not the blues, the, uh, the team blues, but St. Louis Blues, the music. St. Oh, Louis like jazz. Blues. That was only the knowledge we had about St. Louis. That's crazy. And what year was that? It was 1991. Again, it was huge, huge time. Uh, I mean, the time of um, truly exodus. Uh, and what I also want to stress, only here, and I when... Uh, only here I was watching this documentaries on the History Channel. And even right now it gives me goosebumps about this humongous um, gathering on the, in Washington, D.C., on the mall, where uh, American Jewish students, and not only students, had this huge gathering and pushing the Reagan administration or to, again, they were um, strike, not a strikes, but what do you call it? The, like a rally? Rallies, exactly. Rallies for the Jews to lead, to let the Jewish people who are struggling in the Soviet Union and who wanted to make Aliyah no matter where, or Israel or here, to let them go, let my people go. We never heard about that living in the Soviet Union. When I watched it years after I came here, I was stunned. I was so uh, touched by that. I truly cried when I was watching that because we had no idea that because of that huge, not support, huge fight here of um, American jewelry, jewelry and young people, uh, the Soviet Jews could, could make this change. That's really incredible. So, but obviously coming here, there's a language barrier. So did you speak any English before? I would say that immigration is 
very hard thing to do. I would never say that we were hungry here one day because again, thank you to the Jewish Federation who did incredible job. We came over, it was apartment right here in Olivet, ready, not in Olivet, we started here in uh, University City. It was apartment rented for us by the Jewish Federation. There was, it was furnished, of course it was not fancy, everything was decent. I opened the refrigerator and again, uh, the tears was running um, on my cheeks because I had this very interesting smell I never ever in my life smelled while living in the Soviet Union. And it was a smell of celery. I never, by the age of 30, I never tried celery. That makes really, you know, I've heard from your mom that you are a great cook. And it really brings a lot of wonderful um, uh, taste and smell to anything you cook. So while we came over, neither me nor my husband knew any English for some crazy reason. Uh, we, uh, in the, of course, in the Soviet Union, uh, beside uh, many subjects, it would be a foreign language. And two out of three schools, for some reason, uh, taught German. After the war, I don't know why German, but that was my second language. So when I came over here, of course, we tried to take courses in English. But to be honest, three words were in my vocabulary, uh, very strong, and I pretty much used them comfortably. Hi, bye, and okay. So there was not, not spoken English, and uh, that was the hardest. Uh, why? Because not having anybody around, not being able to communicate with people. That must have been incredibly difficult to come here. And I mean, there was so much to, I'm sure, culture shock coming to from like a socialistic type of government to coming to a government that's democratic and has so much freedom. How was that transition for you in terms of being able to support your family and learn English? Uh, as I say to uh, all my acquaintance or friends in America, we came not from a different country. At that time, we came from a different planet. Uh, people who come over from Ukraine right now, lots of uh, immigrants, and even Russians who don't want to live under this uh, horrible, uh, almost dictatorship of uh, nowadays uh, government in uh, Russia. They are coming from totally different society because they lived at least 20 years in um, not capitalism, but something in between. They knew what is a free uh, market is, they were able to travel and so forth. We were different people. It, if you would meet me uh, in 91, uh, it would be totally different, even if I would be able to speak English. So, of course, uh, I started like most of, not most, some people were able to go right away to 
community college and uh, even with a very rudimental English to take some courses. But uh, I was so um, restricted because I had two small children, nobody to help me. Uh, my husband started working even though he was an engineer back in Russia. He started working like majority of Russian men uh, driving a taxi cab. Um, and I was my very first dollar that I make, really, you probably will, it's hard to believe even for me right now. Uh, somebody called me and said that in Crown Center here, there is a gentleman who is partially uh, he, um, uh, incapable, he was paralyzed, and he needed a person to wash his floor once a week. And here I am with a bucket and a uh, map walking from my apartment. At that time, we lived in Indian Trails in Olivet. So it was a 45 minutes walk to by feet and pregnant. Um, I was walking back and forth to wash his floor for $7. And uh, that was my first money I made. Um, later off, later through the years, I was tried to uh, count how many jobs, very, very menial jobs I was making. I was babysitting, taking care of elderly people, uh, working in the nursing home, working as a waiter. It was a wonderful restaurant uh, across from the Galleria Andre, uh, European French bakery doesn't exist doesn't exist anymore unfortunately so I was waiting tables I was working as a salesperson so little by little as my English uh, I was not able to go to the English language school unfortunately as the majority of Soviet Jews were they were free of charge but again I was staying home with my kids for a long time until uh, my um, neighbor, a wonderful woman who is in her 90s right now, and she is still alive, thanks God, uh, was coming and helping us to uh, take care of my children. So I was able to do these jobs. And maybe the difference between what we paid to her and what I was making were three, four dollars. So years passed and uh, all these years also, I of course was um, willing and longing for what I used to do and I wanted to write some stories, the human interest stories, which I started doing with the help of a wonderful person who also came to my apartment one day. She showed up through the Jewish Federation and um, she helped me this uh, Lady Susan, uh, this, uh, I, we were talking almost by fingers and little words that I would find. I would write my story in Russian and try to my best to translate it in, in a very clumsy English. And she would help me to make it readable, uh, not only readable, but really presentable. And I was doing for maybe 
seven, eight, ten years, uh, I was freelancing for uh, the Jewish Light of St. Louis, writing human interest stories about Russian Jews who, like myself, came to this country with two suitcases that all you could bring with you, and we didn't have anything pretty much at that time because uh, we lived in the government apartment, so we didn't have anything to sell before we uh, moved to this country. So as for me, in one of my suitcase was a basic you know, clothing, and in the second uh, suitcase, I had the photographs and children books that I was bringing. My husband was very mad, by the way. He said, well, you need to take some more useful stuff. And I said, that my treasure, my photographs of my family, my friends, because who knows if we ever be able to go back. And I need to read my children the night stories before they go to bed. And I brought lots of Russian books, children books that my parents used to read to me before sleeping, going to bed. Um. Yes, so I had about 15 like menial jobs and then um, I had a few courses, of course. I started taking courses in English and some typing in uh, community college and uh, I got my first um, paraprofessional job with a uh, special school district uh, in St. Louis, working one year in the school as a teacher assistant. By that time, I also started, I always wanted since day number one to uh, explore what is to be Jewish, the, my Jewish kind world. And uh, this wonderful host family who also I met through the Jewish Federation Rick and Marcy Kornfeld, they belong to the United Hebrew Congregation, Reform Congregation, and um, they uh, introduced me to the director of the school at that time. It was a wonderful lady. Um, she doesn't live in St. Louis anymore. And she hired me. I said, please take me uh, as a teacher assistant. And the teacher assistant at the school is pretty much the girl who it usually the high school kids who take the kids if they need to go to the bathroom or pour the juice for them. So I wanted through just being in these classes to catch some knowledge in, in, in Judaism. So that's how I started. And then I went through a few other Reform temples. I was working as a um, summer um, in a summer camp at Sheremis. Then I worked for quite uh, many years and you know, uh, centrally Reform congregation teaching in the first, uh, the second grade. Um, I started feeling that I want more. It is not really my place and. Um, I started asking around the people. Oh, I'm sorry. I again touch again the Jewish topic, but um, after working one year in a special school district, I was able to get, believe it or not, a job at Washington University Library um, uh, Law School. 
I'm not a librarian. I'm not, I don't have a library education, unfortunately. Uh, I was hired as a public service assistant. So my job was at the time quite, um, quite good, quite comfortable. I was able to uh, meet students, meet people there. It's a beautiful campus, of course. It was a uh, nice place to work, and I worked there for 20 years. But all these years, uh, on the weekends, again, I worked in the uh, Sunday schools uh, in several reform uh, temples, but at a certain point, um, I realized that I need more and I need something different. And one of my friends luckily uh, pointed me towards uh, Rabbi Greenwald, who is a rabbi at Asia Torah organization here in St. Louis, and I am his disciple since. So that's kind of my story in a very concise. Um, I wonder if we ever like passed by each other and didn't realize it because when I was in high school, I actually taught as a Sunday school teacher at Asia Torah. Mm. And Rabbi Greenwald was actually one of my teachers when I was in high school. So yeah. full circle, everybody's connected. St. Louis is very, even for myself now, I see how St. Louis had such a small, small word, especially if you belong to the Jewish uh, circle. For sure. People, of course, even myself who came, who didn't have anybody here. Yes, you're right. It's a very interesting. I mean, your story is so incredibly powerful. And I think one thing that stands out throughout all was that your desire to always chase what was meaningful to you and what intrigued you despite the fact how scary it might be. And that is so incredibly powerful because I think so many people want to grow and want to try new things, but that fear holds them back. And so your story isn't an easy one and it wasn't yeah. always happy. Oh no. But it's incredibly meaningful. Thank you. And um, believe it or not, 20 years after working in the library, um, right now I have a part-time uh, job with Torah prep school, mm -hmm. uh, working with uh, a family, children, obviously, from a very observant, um, very observant families here, mostly from University City, where we sit now in your house, or Chesterfield, and working with, um, under the not the supervision, but I work as an assistant to your mom, who is unbelievably um, excellent. Just, I can't find the word to describe um, an exceptional teacher and um, pedagogue. Do you, is, is this word exist? Pedagogue, pedagogue. It's more than a teacher. It's not only you get knowledge from this person, but you also get a uh, wisdom and knowledge how to live your life. So he gives you more than just a particular facts. Or, so that's how I, I found that your mom, Maura Adina is, and some other teachers, um, 
I work in several classes, and it uh, I learned from from believe it or not, kindergarten and first grade kids more than I knew living here my first 20 years. That makes a lot of sense to me because kindergarten, first grade, that's foundation, right? So that's, you know, usually if you have a good core in elementary school years, that will help you later on in life. And yeah, my mom has been teaching forever. She even taught me when I was in first grade. So that was over 20 years ago. So it just goes to show when you really love something. But it must be so incredible for you to be surrounded by this now. Like, would you ever have imagined back in the day that something like this was possible, that there's like a Jewish Orthodox school and there's little kids living observant lives growing up in a free country? Yeah, they want to sometimes, they ask me questions, and one time I am staying, uh, not not one, many times, I'm staying behind this tiny, uh, good Jewish cops, good tiny kids with incredible intelligence and incredible knowledge in, of course, Hebrew and uh, uh Jewish studies, and I feel like they are my, not my age, but uh, I stay when they read from Sidur or, or Torah, and I stay beside, behind them trying to uh, catch up, they chant, and I just mesmerize listening to how easy and how natural is that, not having it in my life, whatsoever, and a uh, few students asked me, Mrs. Fish, you don't know Hebrew, and I said, unfortunately, I don't, and I have to be very honest with you. You uh, probably won't believe me, but in my childhood, we were not allowed, we were not allowed to even believe in God, to even pray to go to synagogue, there were no synagogues. And even the Russians who are Russian Orthodox, obviously Christians, they were not able to go to their churches. It was completely atheistic society and the basis of the communism uh, ideology is atheism. There is no God, there is nothing you, uh, uh, you believe in other than your morals, your uh, way of life. Um, it's straight um, Darwin theory about, you know, how human, um, human race uh, evolved and you don't know any, any, anything alternative. It was forbidden. You could not keep um, Bible, Torah in your house. It was not was unheard of it's crazy yeah so switching the topic just a tiny bit so we caught up on understanding what brought you here and learning about communists the ussr the soviet union and then what happened before the iron curtain or yeah the iron curtain came down and then afterwards and so now we know that there is the ukrainian war against russia and so I know this is a very sensitive topic, and so we don't have to go too in deep in, in depth if it's too sensitive for you. But I would love to hear your thoughts on what is going on over there. 
It is a very um, painful and uh, embarrassing topic, um, even among friends here, among families in Russia. And I told you that my brother, um, who is a um, quite big in his uh, area scientist, uh, there are split in the families completely like here you can uh, make an analogy like uh, Republicans or uh, Democrats after uh, recently, in, in recent year. But it's even much worse because it is a war between two absolutely, not absolutely similar, no, I would never say that Ukrainians and Russians are similar, but when I grew up and they were no closer uh, ethnically and uh, uh, in, any, in any way, it was the most brotherly relationship, at least, again, what we learned through our literature, through our poetry, through our especially propaganda again. Russians and Ukrainians were like a siblings, not even uh, relatives. It's like a sibling connection, relationship. And even imagine that Russians would so barbarically attack this tiny little country Comparing, again, look at the map. One day last year gives me a goosebumps, and I was really, uh, at that time, I, I, my uh, eyes was filled with uh, tears. The girls in the fourth grade, we were standing, they have a map in their classroom, and they said, Mrs. Fish, why look at uh, the map? Russia is so huge. Why it needs this small country, Ukraine? Uh, why do they? Why why this war? Even those girls who are just what in the fourth grade, you're They're like nine, ten years old. Even these kids bringing up this question, it is so unimaginable and absolutely horrific. Um, again, this awful man, that is not, not even the right word. Um, in, in, in Yiddish, it is Meshugane, it is, but he is not Meshugane, he knows what he's doing. I'm talking about this ugly Putin guy. He told, that was his, one of the first statement when he became a president, that uh, he, in his mind, the, uh, Worst tragedy that happens to the Soviet Union was the break, breakage of the, the, so that all the 15 republics uh, that were a part of the Soviet Union uh, moved away to become the separate countries. And this aggression, it is a latest in a number of aggression to other small countries like Moldova, like Georgia, I'm not even talking uh, Baltic republics that were always oriented to the West. 
but what they do in Ukraine, it is horror beyond, beyond any imagination. The horror, uh, what they do to the cities, they demolish beautiful, during this 20 years after Ukraine became independent, it had such a huge prog progress in terms of economic, the um, way of life people were, the, the so many uh, Ukrainians are very hard workers. They can make, they build, they can build, the men are very uh, handy. They almost, every family who wanted to have their own house, they would build a beautiful house. The women uh, would make a beautiful front backyard, grow wonderful flowers, vegetables. It is very rich soil in Ukraine, so you just drop a stick and it becomes a peach tree. So, but now it is a disaster. So many people are uh, killed, the children raped, the women raped, the children are stolen from the families. I can't even Lately, I stopped watching and listening pod podcasts because it really makes me uh, so depressed that Russians who were during the Second World War and Ukrainians and any other nations, people are afraid to talk anything other than what the propaganda is. Uh, they have, again, complete they cut from the Western world. Even if I talk to my friends, which I still have in Russia, the, the friends who I grew up with, and even my brother, I have to speak, um, I can't speak openly to him. I have to use like not a silent language, I can't, but uh, I can't ask him direct any direct question. I can't talk to him uh, on any topics related to the war in Ukraine. And um, the censorship is uh, exactly at, uh, like it used to be, even at the time when my parents grew up. Again, my time was much more vegetarian, much, I mean, it was not good, but not as awful as during the Stalin and um, about 20 years after. So this war is uh, a tragedy, tragedy unimaginable uh, size, and it's a tragedy for Russians as well, because Russians, uh, the soldiers who are going to this war, Russia always had a lack of young men. They are also dying in thousands if they want or not. Some go like a good patriot. They are so fed up by this propaganda that Ukraine is fascist, nationalist country that they do want to go and kill. But so many guys have just no choice. They are drafted and they come back either in the containers being killed and uh, the, with the last development in Ukraine with a dam 
uh, of the river, the largest river in Ukraine was demolished. It is a humongous ecological, non-repairable, it's unrepairable ecological uh, catastrophe uh, beside the uh, catastrophe that happens to the country, which uh, beautiful towns and villages are wiped out from the earth. And of course, the human losses, that's the, the most horrific one. So I cry my tears for Ukrainians and I cry my tears for Russians because they are, they are forever, I doubt that they will be a nation uh, who would be respected or um, have its position in the world after that barbaric acts and the war is Russians believe that they will be able to come to Kiev and have it in several days and the war lasts more than a year and it is it is very 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 tragic events we live through so in the past the US has always been like a big brother and has always fought for freedom in other countries. And so people seem to be more divided than ever. People talk about how the United States right now is so broken within our own government. There's so much problems within our own economy. People feel that we should just stay focused on our own land before we start fighting the wars of others. So being part of both worlds, it's not an easy question. No. But... Maybe it's just a good conversation at least to get started. Do you think that this is something that the U.S. should get involved in? Or is this not something that we should be involved in at this time? War after war. Let's start with as far as Vietnam War, that Americans try to help their uh, other nations to create certain bring the democracy and help and um, establish peace and so forth. And war after war, I know that many of my Russian countrymen might blame me and will be quite angry with me saying that. But unfortunately, with the best intention, as soon as the war is over or American pull their armies out of these countries, the people have no respect to the contrary. They have a bad feelings about America. They are perceived Americans as pushy and it's not their business. It's our wars. It's our decisions. So I hear this arguments and I cannot be living in this country for so many years and knowing what a humongous impact each war that America is involved in brings on American economy and people, how many, uh, you know, how many roads which are now, nowadays, it, reminds me of Russian roads, which were always a trouble in Russia. So in this regard, 
I, I'm very split at the same time if the countries, the West, not only America, but of course the European Union countries uh, not helping, would not help Ukraine, it will be no, no chance of Ukraine to stop this atrocious war. So I don't know what to say you. I can't say yes or no. I am, we certainly should give Ukraine as much help as possible, but can we afford this help when we know that the depth, depth death, not depth and not death. The depth. Can you please say it in a good English? The how many trillion dollars America has uh, in, uh, in our budget. And again, the American boys who are going to this country and coming back in, you know, uh, in, in the coffins. I'm, I'm very, very, it is question which I struggle with. I struggle with myself as much as I want Ukrainians, especially, they need not as much money as a airplanes. If they would have supplied by the airplanes, the war would be over a long time ago. But the nations don't want to, you know, um, have a fight with Putin and his clique. And that's, that, that's very scary because Putin would not stop in Ukraine. He would go farther and like we knew from the day number one that it is a beginning of the Third World War. I'm sorry for such a um, pessimistic opinion on my part, but that's, that's how I see this ho horrifying conflict, not conflict, but happenings, this war between, it's not the war between Russia and Ukraine, it's a war between empire, which is Russia, and the rest of the civilization. appreciate you so much sharing your story. Your life has been incredible. You've done so much with it. I love your thirst for knowledge. You're an incredibly intelligent woman. And thank you so much for taking the time today to sit with me and to share your story. Wishing you the best, too. Thanks. And your mom, of course. Yeah. And your dad. I hope you guys have a great week. Let's get it. Let's go.